0: Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. This month, we're celebrating women's history. In this episode, we're drawing from our archives here at WMMT. In 1995, then-WMMT producer Maxine Kinney recorded 15 Appalachian women writers talking about their lives and reading their work. The recordings were edited into an audio series narrated by Tennessee poet Nikki Giovanni. The series is made up of interviews with Joe Carson, Lou Crabtree, Denise Giardina, Wilma Dykeman, Michelle Green, Barbara Kingsolver, George Ella Lyon, Bobby Ann Mason, Sharon McCrum, Rita Quillen, Mary Lee Settle, Anne Shelby, and Lee Smith. And with Mary Lou Aoyakta and Nikki Giovanni, whose interviews and readings we'll hear on today's program. I see myself and my work as a
1: bridge by blood and experience to try to create understanding between entities that are different. So a lot of my work is to bring to people's consciousness the stories, the traditional stories of the Cherokee people and the Appalachian people and through that to help people
2: understand. I'm Nikki Giovanni, your host for Tell It on the Mountain, a series of programs featuring women writers who call the Southern Appalachian Mountains home. Today, our featured artist is Mary Lou Awiokta, a poet and essayist who makes her home in Memphis, Tennessee. She grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee on a top secret government reservation called Oak Ridge, where the atomic bomb was developed. Awiokta prefers to use her middle name, a Cherokee name, which means Eye of the Deer, and her writing seeks to illuminate the native way of thought. Coming also from Celtic stock, she draws upon these roots as well for her philosophy and to direct her pen. Awi Akta is an activist on social and environmental issues. She was deeply affected in the 1970s by Tennessee's controversial Teleco Dam project in which politicians and the media debated whether the snail daughter should continue to exist but ignore the pleas of the Cherokee to not flood their sacred burial grounds. With the knowledge born of a Cherokee culture that regards creation as a covenant, and women as sacred keepers of that covenant, Awi writes poetry with a power that is decidedly spiritual. In it, she reminds us all of our responsibilities as stewards of this earth, and as caretakers for the future. In her book, Selu, Seeking the Corn Mother's Wisdom, we find a timeless and wise voice who speaks the language of all things eternal. I
1: know there are people who are racist, and I know there are people whose minds are closed, but there are, thousands and thousands of people who if they had the choice of knowing would know if they had the book, if they had the course at college, if they had uh, a storyteller to come, if they had a way of knowing that they would wish to know. An Indian walks in me. She stepped so firmly in my mind that when I stand against the pine, I know we share the inner light of the star that shines on me. She taught me this, my Cherokee, when I was a spindly child. And rustling in dry forest leaves, I heard her say, these speak. She said the same of sighing wind, of hawk descending on the hair, and mother's care to draw the cover snug around me, of blackberries warming in the sun, and copperhead coiled on the stone. These speak, I listened. Long before I learned the universal turn of atoms, I heard the spirit song that binds us all as one, and no more will I follow any rule that splits my soul. My Cherokee left me no sign except in hair and cheek, and this firm step of mind that seeks the whole in strength and
3: peace.
1: I say I have three heritages, the Cherokee and the Appalachian or Celtic, and scientific, And my family's lived in southern Appalachia for seven generations at least. That's how many are recorded and then there are some before that. But the first Cherokee Celtic marriage occurred in Poor Valley, Virginia in seventeen fifty, and then there are other intermarriage, you know, down through the family. Daddy got a job in a big new development, secret development, 18 miles away from Knoxville, named Oak Ridge, which now everyone knows that it was um, where atomic energy was developed and in the days when they were building um, the bomb, the atomic bomb, but at that time, all people knew was that there was this tremendous something being built out there that was fenced and had barbed wire and was top secret and people didn't speak about their work until later and when the security ban was lifted so none of the children in school you didn't have any of this people going around saying oh my father does this and my father does that because if they said anything like that their father would be fired (laughs) you know so it was a very different environment and turned out my father was an accountant and my Mother, I knew what she did, and Mother taught school. She was a substitute teacher at Elm Grove School. And there was all kinds of speculation about what it might be, but when the bomb was dropped is when people found out. Except, of course, for top echelon of scientists who knew. In that time, the word atomic was not even known to most of the population. The word Adam was not in the vocabulary of the average people. So it was a whole new um, power that was unleashed and it was, yes, it was frightening. My mother was always very, very encouraging of me and she told me, I made my first poem when I was about three, and we were walking along the sidewalk. A monarch butterfly died in the air and grazed my shoulder as it fell to the ground. And I picked it up and said, "Oh, little butterfly, I wish you weren't dead so you could fly with other butterflies instead. And then I picked the butterfly up and put it out of harm's way. I always wanted to be a poet from the time I opened my eyes. And looking back from over my life now, I think that oh, little butterfly was the keynote of my work and my thought because most of my work centers on caring about pain and damage and trying to move people and thought toward a safer place out of harm's way. There's a poem, Dying Back, that's very interesting juxtaposed with a little butterfly, and the Cherokee called the trees standing people. So This is about the standing people in Appalachia. Dying back. On the mountain, the standing people are dying back. Hemlock, spruce, and pine turn brown in the head. The hardwood shrivels in new leaf. Unnatural death from acid greed that takes the form of rain and fog and cloud. In the valley, the walking people are blank-eyed. Elders mouth vacant thought. Youth grow spindly, wan from sap, too drugged to rise. Pushers drain it off. Sap is gold to them. The walking people are dying back, as all species do, that kill their own seed. See, it's like a little butterfly, how I wish you weren't dead. the native tradition is art for life's sake as opposed to art for art's sake so i follow that tradition and the artist according to that tradition is supposed to create harmony and healing in the environment and for the people in other words to use the art form in my case poetry or essays to that end and so that's the way my whole life in writing has gone, because when I was little my mother asked me, uh, when I told her I wanted to be a poet, she'd say, that's good, what will you do for the people? So I had to think and think because poetry is very, doesn't do much for the GNP, you know. <laughs> not in high demand, but that's the way my whole... Um, professional life has developed with doing poems. For example, the, a Department of Conservation came to me and wanted to use Dying Back in an article on acid rain, and they wanted to use it to focus people's hearts toward the subject and then follow it up with statistics, and that's not something I learned to do in college. That's traditional to Appalachia and to the Cherokee Appalachian people. You know, I, I did go to college and study history, and got all the tools, I went to the University of Tennessee, got excellent tools to work with, but it's heritage that told me what to do with them. So I think what my work has done, what scientists tell me it has done, is make a bridge so they can see correlations between their field and, say, the Cherokee way of thought. For example, um, the Cherokee traditional way is that Creator made everything connected in a web of life, that all things are connected, skies and people and trees and so forth, and that we're supposed to live in harmony with them. Well, on the subatomic level, everything is connected through energy and through the atoms, as you know, and, and the atoms are always moving and recombining and so I saw a very great correlation between the Cherokee traditional way and the uh, nuclear view of reality, which is what I combined in Bearing the Atom's Mother Heart, which was an essay I did in 81. I called it the Atom's Mother Heart because the atom is a central building block of nature and also it moves in a circular fashion and as a weaver, weaves life together. So then I connected that with the Cherokee history. The essay started out, what is the atom, Mother, will it hurt us? And it began with my childhood in Oak Ridge in the secret environment, and about how once we knew what was going on there, the bomb and atomic energy, my mother said it was, we would have to understand it, you know, and be respectful. and learn its ways or we wouldn't survive it i think in considering the the uses of nuclear energy we need to consider the web of uses destruction is one but thanks to radioactive isotopes every cancer victim in the whole world now can have a tracer put in the body to trace where there might be cancer and those isotopes came out of the same reactor that made the bomb so It's a choice of what we're going to use it for. I am very much pro reverence, pro respect for the atom as a power. And I feel the polarization between the pro nuclear people and the anti nuclear people created a vacuum um, where the atom's still splitting, but who's in there taking care of it? It's here. It's been here for 50 years and either we ought to handle it with respect or we ought to shut it down. My last book, Salu Seeking the Corn Mother's Wisdom, is about a traditional Cherokee story of how the first woman came to the earth as she was born from the corn. and she taught the people the law of respect. If you take, you have to give back with respect. Well, when I was seven years old, you can imagine I heard that and thought of it one way. And then, by the time I was thirty, I was thinking of the broader implications and then, Now, with when I have grandchildren of my own, the broader ones, for the world of the importance of respect, of taking and giving back with respect. Would you like me to say the one poem that I would leave, if I could just leave one of my works, would be this poem. When earth becomes an it, when the people call earth mother, they take with love and with love give back so that all may live. When the people call earth it, they use her, consume her strength, then the people die. Already the sun is hot out of season. Our mother's breast is going dry. She is taking all green into her heart and will not turn back until we call her by her name. When I was little, my grandfather uh, showed me a, a spider's web and how if you touch one strand, it vibrates the whole web, and explained to me that all of life and nature was connected. And if you did something to one part of nature, like if you put poison in the water, it would get to the fish, which would in turn get to the people and the plants, and so forth. Or if you did away with honeybees, that would be one tiny strand, but it would affect the food, and and I think People are thinking more in those terms ecologically now, but what he was teaching me was was a very traditional and highly developed philosophical view of the world that the Cherokee had and many of the Celtic people, the Appalachian people also. What I hope my work does is contribute my strand of the web toward raising this consciousness. The Cherokee philosophy is you work through the bad but you always face east you face toward the future and the sunrise and take what is good and go on with it so that's what i hope to do with my work is uh, is go toward the toward the people that want to make a bridge of understanding among all people No, know, it's interesting to me that into these mountains, they came to split the atom. It's a very secret place. Mountains hold many secrets. But in 1942, they would hold one of the greatest secrets that would not be revealed until 1945. And over 50% of the people employed at Oak Ridge were native people. That is native to the region of East Tennessee or to the mountain region. And so I grew up where the future was beginning, not because I chose it, but, you know, wherever the Creator puts you down, you do the best you can with what you've got and put it together and make something positive. That is a strong Appalachian Cherokee tradition that is taught from generation to generation in these mountains, isn't it? I mean, they, we don't especially care for puny people. You're supposed to... <laughs> Uh, If something goes wrong, it's okay to cry, but then quit it, clean it up, and get on with it. Uh, Have any of you heard that philosophy growing up? (laughs) I imagine so. So that's something we share. I'd like to say a poem for you first that has become one of the best-loved poems from my work. It comes from the first poem in abiding Appalachia, and it's been titled Mother Root. This poem was chosen by Alice Walker to go in her book in search of our mother's gardens. Then, Gloria Steinem chose it to go in her book, Revolution From Within. Then, the University of Southern California at Riverside in Los Angeles is just redesigning their campus to unite the humanities and the sciences. And there will be a walk that goes from the sciences to the humanities, of course, with beautiful orange trees. And you know, California really gets into the aesthetics of things. There'll be beautiful orange trees and water in this long walk. And on one side of the walk will be Virgil, And on the other side of the walk will be Biting Appalachia in this poem, Mother Root. Creation often needs two hearts, one to root and one to flower, one to sustain in time of drought and hold fast against winds of pain the fragile bloom that in the glory of its hour affirms a heart unsung, unseen. So beginning with a thanksgiving for all of our ancestors who held fast, did the best they could in the place where they were so that we could be here today and try to do the best we can with what we've got so that in the seventh generation from now, there will be a green tree and there will be a people. Sometimes people are afraid of unity and diversity, but our whole country was founded on the principle of the Constitution. Each heritage brings good things. Uh, and my whole book, Selu, Seeking the Corn Mother's Wisdom, takes a Cherokee story of the corn mother, and it takes the reader as a companion on a journey to see how we might apply the wisdoms that the corn mother taught of respect, of taking, giving back with respect, and unity, and diversity, and gender balance, and so forth, and how we might apply those to our times today. The grandmother lived with her husband, Kanadi, Zalu, and her two grandsons. And every time the two grandsons came in from hunting, usually deer, their grandmother fixed them a wonderful soup, very thick soup, with something she called grits. And they said, grits, we've never heard of this, grandmother. What is this, well, grits. She said, I, it, it's something new. So the grandsons decided that, it was very curious because every time she went in the smokehouse, she came out with this basket. So these grown, now these are grown boys, as we say in the mountains. These are boys, well grown, and they ought to have known better, but but they said, well, um, why don't we go spy on grandmother and see what she's doing? And, and the other one said, well, I, I don't wanna do it, you do it, you heard that? So one of them went and he looked in and he saw Salu rub her sides, and as she rubbed her sides, the corn fell into the basket. And he went back and told his brother, grandmother is rubbing her sides and this this thing she calls corn is coming out into the basket and uh, really it must be an unsavory thing and so the next day they didn't eat their soup and the grandmother said you're not eating your soup and they said oh grandmother but it is very delicious and she said well you're not eating your soup i don't think you like me and they said no grandmother it's not that we're just tired from hunting and she said well Maybe, she said, but I think you don't like me, or maybe you know something you shouldn't. And uh, she said, now that you know my secret, see she knew, looked in their eyes, she knew. Now that you know my secret, I've, I must die, I must leave you. Because I am the corn mother. This thing they call corn is I. And the basic thing is that you have looked on the mystery. And so I have to leave you in this form and thereupon she laid out seven years work for them. Well, I think we live by stories. People tell stories to uh, help you live, to entertain you, to teach you history. And well, Southerners as a whole are that way. Anytime you get people together they tell stories about things I consider myself a traditionalist and I believe in the traditional Cherokee way of the gender balance of a place for women, an equal place for women. This balance with the earth and with male and female is very important in the Cherokee traditional thought and the mutual respect. And that's one of the major themes of my work, that how the genders treat each other is directly related to the environment and how we treat the environment. If it gets out of balance, for example, when women are considered objects or its. And now in our culture, there's such abuse of women, a woman abused every 15 seconds. That's really suicidal on the part of our species because to damage your life bearing gender and much less your young is suicidal and it's almost like there's a madness, an insanity in the culture at this point. If the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, If the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, why does the mother pace row on row of white crosses, seeking the one that stakes her son motionless in his lidded box? If the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, why do mother and daughter leave the courtroom with their freed rapists, bowing their heads against his gleeful stare? If the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, Why does the mother nurse a famished baby, pressing her shriveled nipple into a tiny mouth too weak to take hold? If the world wants the hand that rocks the cradle to rule, why does it slam its council door on the mother's wrist, watching as she strains her other hand toward a cradle that rocks slower, slower, slower? I think that age makes a very great difference as far as experience and what to do with what your gift is. I think the destruction of the environment has accelerated since 1958 when I graduated from college. It has greatly accelerated, and the violence in our society has accelerated. And so by now, where I'm writing with Selu, Seeking the Core Mother's Wisdom is a, a summation of where I am now in my thought and my work. And I'm also, I was also, as I was writing the book, my first two grandchildren were born. And there's a, I think you have such a feeling that you want these grandchildren and everyone's children and grandchildren to have a green tree to have a place where they can go to school and their heritage will be honored and they can develop and grow like the seeds they are and by the time you're what the native people say the mother of the nation age which is what i am now um you have a very pragmatic understanding of power and how it works and how little time there is and and what can be done about it so i think there has been a an urgency to my work to try to use it for as much good as I can with the time I have left so that this next generation coming on will be assured of their birthright. I I feel that that that's my bottom heart right there.
4: and this feature on the life and work of writer Mary Lou Awiakta was produced by Maxine Kinney at WMMT, the public radio station of Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Awiakta read from Abiding Appalachia, where Mountain and Adam meet, Iris Press, and Salu Seeking the Corn Mother's Wisdom, Fulcrum Publishing. Special thanks for the production help of Gary Slimp, Kate Larkin, and Stephanie Whitstone.
0: You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. On today's episode, we're celebrating Women's History Month by digging into our archives here at WMMT. We bring you two segments from the 1995 audio series, Tell It on the Mountain, in which Maxine Kinney recorded 15 Appalachian women writers talking about their lives and reading excerpts of their work. We just heard from Cherokee and Appalachian poet Mary Lou Awayakta. Next, we hear from Tennessee poet Nikki Giovanni, who narrated the 15-part audio series. i now make my home in
2: Blacksburg, Virginia, and teach at Virginia Tech. It's been so wonderful for me as your host to look at the diversity. We have a, a breadth here, but all of us are women, and all of us are essentially nurturers. And using nurture in its finest sense, you've got to stand up and, and and, and walk, you've got to do something for yourself. The American Renaissance and literature that's coming right now is coming from Appalachia. It's very easy to see, having looked at these women of our series, how the storytelling of the mountains, how the storytelling of the holler, how the story of growing up, standing at this mountaintop, looking over to our big brother, the Rockies in the West is the American story. The Appalachian area is the confluence of the American dream. We had to climb to the mountaintop so that we could make a decision about going over. Those who went on became pioneers of another sort. Those who stayed fought this rock, this soil, this hard mountain life to make something wonderful, something better. We have the story of the women that we are talking about today. I wrote a poem called Hands. And I think it's so typical of all women because it it includes both the mothers and the wives. I think hands must be very important. Hands plait hair, knead bread, spank bottoms, ring in anguish, shake the air in exasperation, wipe tears, sweat, and pain from faces. Are at the end of arms which hold. Yes, hands. Let's start with the hands. My grandmother washed on Mondays, every Monday. If you were a visiting grandchild or a resident daughter. Every Monday morning at 6 a.m., mostly in the dark, frequently in the cold, certainly alone, you heard her on the back porch starting to hum, as black Christian ladies are prone to do at threshold. Some plead to higher beings for forgiveness and the power to forgive. I saw a photograph once of the mother of Emmett Till, a slight brown woman with pillbox hat, white gloves, eyes dark beyond pain, and comprehensibly looking at a world that never intended to see her son be a man, That same look is created each year without the hat and gloves, for mother seals are not chic at the Arctic Circle. That same look is in vogue in Atlanta, Cincinnati, Buffalo, for much the same reason. During one brief moment, for one passing wrinkle in time, Nancy Reagan wore that look, sharing a bond as yet unconsummated with Betty Shabazz, Jacqueline Kennedy, Coretta King, Ethel Kennedy. The wives and mothers are not so radically different. It is the hands of women which massage the balm, the ointments, the lotions into the bodies for burial. It is our hands which cover the eyes of small children, soothe the longing of the brothers, make the beds, set the tables, wipe away our own grief to give comfort to those beyond comfort. I yield from women whose hands are black and rough. The women who produced me are in defiance of porcelana and Jergens' lotion, are ignorant of Madge's need to soak their fingernails in palm olive dishwashing liquid, My women look at cracked, jagged fingernails that will never be adequately disguised by Revlon's new spring reds. We, of the unacceptably strong, take pride in the strength of our hands. Some people think a quilt is a blanket stretched across a Lincoln bed or from frames on a wall. A quaint museum piece to be purchased on Bloomingdale's 30 days, same as cash plan. Quilts are our mosaics. Michelle Angelo's contribution to beauty. We weave a quilt with dry, rough hands. Quilts are the way our lives are lived. We survive on patches, scraps, the leftovers from a materially richer culture, the throwaway from those with emotional options. We do the far more difficult job of taking that which nobody wants and not only loving it, not only seeing its worth, but making it lovable and intrinsically worthwhile. Though trite, it's nonetheless true that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Perhaps pitiful would be more accurate, though that too is not profound. The more we experience the human drama, the more we are to understand that whatever is not quite well about us will also not quite go away. Sometimes when it's something like Mother's Day, you really do wish you were smart enough to make the pain stop, to make the little hurts quit throbbing, to share with Star Trek Spock the ability to touch your fingertips to the temples and make all the dumb, ugly, sad things of this world ease from memory. It's not at all that we fail to forgive others for the hurts we have received. We cannot forgive ourselves for the hurts that we have met. It. So, of course, we use our hands to push away rather than pull closer. We look in vain for an image of mothers, for an analogy for families, for a reason to continue. We live mostly because we don't know any better as best we can. Some of us are lucky. We learn to like ourselves, to forgive ourselves, to care about others. Some of us on special occasions Watch the ladies in the purple velvet house slippers with the long black dresses come in from Sunday worship, and we realize man never stood up to catch and kill prey. Man never reared up on his hind legs to free his front parts to hold weapons. Woman stood to free her hands, to hold her young, to embrace her sons and lovers. Woman stood to applaud and cheer a delicate mate who needs her approval. Woman stood to wipe the tears and sweat, to touch the eyes and lips that woman stood to free the arms which hold the hands which hold. I'm from Knoxville, so we're only four hours. um, To be here in in Blacksburg is four hours uh, east of Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a a, a wonderful drive, and I like the mountains. I'm not needing to travel the way that I used to. Mostly, I've been writing, um, I'm I'm not, I am prolific, as I like to say, but not quick. But this year, I've had uh, four books uh, to come out, the latest of which I cannot share, but it's a book called Grandmothers. And it's an anthology, uh, actually, that turned out to be very Southern and um, Pacific Basin. I was invited to do an anthology on grandmothers, granddaughters looking at grandmothers, and I I decided just to ask my friends, and my friends tend to fall into these groups. It's not at all balanced as I I admit in the um, introduction but I invited Maxine Hong Kingston, I invited Gloria Naylor, Gwendolyn Brooks, among other people, and I have a workshop here in, in Blacksburg called the uh, Warm, Hearth, Warm Hearth Writers Group, and they contributed, so I have Southerners, I have Jewish Americans, I have Pan-Asians, and I think there's probably only one Northerner in the whole book, actually. My grandmother was a great influence in terms of speaking out and getting things done. Grandmother was very activist woman, and a woman that uh, I think it's probably fair to say was highly opinionated. But in another respect, the older you get, the more you begin to see like your mother's influence who was a much quieter person In, in many respects. Mommy was not unassertive, but just very quietly. You know, And she gave a lot of credit to a lot of people. And if you didn't think about it again, you would think, oh, mommy didn't really do that much. And then you look around and you realize, oh no, mommy is sitting on some little throne someplace orchestrating it all. And everybody's doing what she wants, but she's giving everybody credit and thanking everybody for doing it, which is a neat way. I'm not a, I don't have a wife mentality. Me, I'm always, you know, do it or not. And it's a very different kind of way of looking at the world. A lot of the way I deal with people, in fact, comes from my mother. I'm just much more direct. I guess the subtitle for, for Knoxville, Tennessee, could be a love poem for my, um, for my grandmother because we used to go and uh, we used to go to the mountains. We used to, you know, the one thing that I realized recently I left out of this poem was pick blackberries because we used to pick blackberries. And I would come back sometimes, I don't know if you've ever picked blackberries, but they're purple, and I would come back literally head to toe. I mean, she would not want me in the car because my grandmother did not drive and there would always be someone taking us and I'd have to be wrapped in a blanket, you know, because you just absolutely covered. This is Knoxville, Tennessee. I always like summer best. You can eat fresh corn from daddy's garden and okra and greens and cabbage and lots of barbecue and buttermilk and homemade ice cream at the church picnic and listen to gospel music outside at the church homecoming and go to the mountains with your grandmother and go barefooted and be warm all the time not only when you go to bed and sleep. I think there's storytellers in, in all American families. If people talked at all, they told stories. And if you're astute at all, they, um, even if they didn't talk, you heard the story. So uh, again, I think that's probably pretty much Southern. My grandfather told a good story. My, um, my father told a good story. I, I think that all of that comes to play. My grandparents are from Albany, Georgia. And grandmother had these wonderful flowers in her yard and someone asked to, um, a white lady stopped by and wanted to buy them. And grandmother, in no uncertain terms, pointed out that she wasn't selling flowers. She didn't grow them to sell them and they weren't for sale, which I understand is not the sort of thing one did in the 1920s in um, Albany, Georgia. And so it became a dispute between the Watsons, of course, and the other family. Actually, I forget the name. I, if mommy, if you had come two weeks earlier, my mother would be here and, could fill in some of the family names of, of the white people for you. But the dispute was ultimately gonna be resolved by um, my, my grandfather's brother getting beaten with a buggy whip. So of course, the Watsons are manning our property. And of course, any white person that shown up that night, we w- probably would have killed them. But in order to, they're also very peaceful and my grandfather's a very peaceful guy. And they thought they had a family caucus and thought, well, we can resolve this by, you know, moving. <laughs> And they probably were right because it's the kind of thing that festers. And so one evening, shortly after that, um, grandmother and grandfather were, were sent to um, Knoxville because he had been offered a job teaching anyway. And so it kind of just worked out to, to sort of speed up the change. And they bought a home in Knoxville, but not not the one that ultimately I knew. And there was a uh, fire, and the home burned. And then they bought 400 Mulvaney, which stood until the expressways um, came in. But grandmother had a great fear of um, fire. This is 400 Mulvaney Street. Uh, Actually, I'd like to see this illustrated. When we were growing up, Knoxville didn't have television, let alone an airport. It finally got TV, but the airport is in our core. It's now called Tyson's Field, right? Small towns are funny. Knoxville even has a zip code and seven digit phone numbers all of which seemed strange to me, since I mostly remember Mrs. Flora Ford's white cake with white icing, and Miss Delaney's blue furs, and Arbertine Pickett's being the sharpest woman in town. She attended our church. And Miss Brooks wearing tight sweaters, and Carla Robert Drugstore sending out modern jazz quartet sounds of Fontessa, and my introduction to Nina Simone by David Cherry, dropping a nickel in the jukebox, and Porky coming out. I mostly remember Vine Street, which I was not allowed to walk to to get to school, though grandmother didn't want me to take Payne Street either because Jay Manning lived on it and he was home from the army and very beautiful with his black face and two dimples. Not that I was going to do anything, because I didn't do anything enough to even think in terms of not doing anything, but according to small town logic, it looks bad. The gym theater was on the corner of Vine and a street that runs parallel to the creek And for 10 cents, you could sit all day and see a double feature, five cartoons, and two serials, plus previews for the next two weeks. And I remember Frankie Lennon came in with her gang and sat behind me. And I wanted to say, hi, can I come sit with you? But I thought they were too snooty. And they, I found out later, thought I was too northern and stuck up. All of this is gone now. Something called progress killed my grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my, my father is from Cincinnati and he went to Knoxville College which ultimately is my mother which became my mother's home and they got married he worked for TVA but TVA was about the best that a black man was going to do at that time so when he graduated from college he wanted to go back to Cincinnati where he could be what he was, which is a professional man, but mommy was expecting me, which is why I I moved to Cincinnati. I was was born in Knoxville, but in August they moved to Cincinnati because they were just waiting on on my birth, as it were. I'm basically, and I will refer to myself on this level, as I'm basically a city girl. I went to New York, I think I was um, 22, 23 years old. I I don't actually remember right now. I guess it's 67, whatever that amounts to. And I, I went up to attend Columbia School of the Arts, and that was a very good move for me because I had been in social work school, and I, I really do recommend any of those kind of liberal arts for any young writer. Uh, social work school was wonderful because it really teaches you that dealing with people is a um, it is a, an art. It's something that you have to learn. It's not something that that comes up. My generation, as you know, um, we're an activist generation, so we did a lot with community um, community based things. So I think. If you look at, at the New York experience, one of the things I wanted to do, of course was write. And in writing, one of the skills that I wanted to take to the New York experience was small town skills because big cities are simply uh, uh, big cities are simply neighborhoods that are connected in a common place. And you can approach it and, and I did in fact, on, on a neighborhood way, you could go out, you can ask people to come to a poetry reading. you can ask people to attend a um, book signing. you can find, a way to get to groups of people by approaching them as individuals and that's very southern you have to you know approach people as human beings that's just very southern I think that place is important, because I really, I sincerely think that we are just maybe a hair turn from recognizing that we are earthlings and the third planet from yellow sun is finite and that there is identifiable life beside us. There is life that we can identify in the heavens, that we have misrepresented to ourselves our galactic space and I think that there is a reason and I think a lot of things that happen are cosmic and that's not that I'm a seer or spiritualist I'm not like that I just there are reasons people do things but we're beginning to watch people claim identifiable spaces you know we're beginning to watch people want to be at home am I making and I, I, I'm excited about that because the affiliations are The Kentucky writers or the Virginians or the South, whatever, it's not a bad movement. It's not like we're here and you're not. It's like a celebration of this bit of earth. So I don't know. I couldn't begin to say, though I'm trying to, I suppose, where this leads. But I think that kind of narrowing of possibilities to say, not that I'm staking the claim, but that this is what makes me happy, is also an indication that something bigger You know, you can always start to feel on earth. And you know that you have to have this clearing out before you can say what new is exactly making its way. Or what, you know, we don't know. We just know something is happening. People are wanting to settle down. You know, something else is happening today. And that we do know. And we do know that all evolutionary change is positive, no matter how much we bitch and moan about it. Um, Revolutionary change if I may use, and I'm a part of a, a generation that demanded revolutionary social change, but we know that a revolutionary change is not codified until it be, in fact is evolutionary, until the people accept that change. And I, I, I think that there is evolutionary change occurring. I just think that, that human beings are into something else right now. I, if, if I knew what, God knows, I, I would certainly sit on a mountain and have people pay tribute to me. But you can feel it, can you not? You can, and, and it's little. It's not the big changes. It's, it's the accolations coming home. It's, it's the people recognizing war doesn't work or racism is not good. It's the little things that people are saying, I don't have to conduct my life like this anymore. There are a, a number of 60s people who, who joined us late and who had um, what I would consider unreal expectations because there is no perfectibility of, of humankind. And I think a lot of people kept thinking, well, we just, if we do this one thing and we do this one thing, it'll all be all right. And after you do about 51 things and you realize it's not, then everybody's like, oh, I'm really disappointed and people are, my life was wasted. But any, any heck, I mean, any basic anthropology 101 tells you that, that people don't change like that. And if you look, at, you look at civil rights, we've done well. And that's not to say that we can't do Better, it's going to be 2100, 22, maybe even 2300 before we actually realizing anywhere near an integrated society. And 300 years is, you know, well beyond my lifetime, your lifetime. But in terms of um, evolution of human beings, it's not long. I wouldn't like to think that you have to wait that long before you say something. These are 60s poems, and of course they came out in the 70s, but of course we all dreamed of revolution. And as you realize, and it's quite true, all revolution has to become evolution in order to be um, realistic revolutionary dreams. I used to dream militant dreams of taking over America to show these white folks how it should be done. I used to dream radical dreams of blowing everyone away with my perceptive powers of correct analysis. I even used to think I'd be the one to stop the riot and negotiate the peace. Then I awoke and dug that if I dreamed natural dreams of being a natural woman, doing what a woman does when she is natural, I would have a revolution. That's the truth. There's nothing harder on earth than being yourself. I know that there are blacks in in Appalachia. I know that that's really an underserved, understated position. And yet I also know that one of the reasons West Virginia became West Virginia is that they refused to really fight for the planters. There's an honorable history here is what I'm saying. And there's a history of race relations in Appalachia that is very different from race relationships in the rest of, of, of the country. And I think that we need to find out what it is that made it work. People will say it's because you're poor, but that's not true. Because poor blacks will kill poor blacks, and as we well know, poor whites will kill poor whites. It's not just poverty. There's something else that is allowing us to exist in this space. And I think it's kind of wonderful. And I think that, that to be in this area, you don't need me to do this. I mean, you didn't ask me to come here to be a cheerleader today, but I just want to remind, because we got high school kids here, and some of you high school kids are saying, I should go out and get a job. Well, if you used to not having anything, you should be a writer. <laughs> you, you see? Well, sure. And, and so when you start to think about what you can do, I was teasing a couple of the young ladies here because I said, one, when you start to think about college, you, you're living in Wise, you're living in Lee County, you're living in this area, Grundy, you can think about a couple of things. One, you can think about being a writer because our stories need to be told. There are wonderful, great stories here. And if you don't want to be a writer, you should think about being a lawyer because God knows there is a lot to sue around here. I mean, you're just... <laughs> I wanted to write a middle age poem because it's really one of those imaginary lines that I think is important, you know, and I'm always missing important things. I don't have that many holiday poems and stuff. So I thought, ah, am going to write a poem on, on my middle age. But I wanted to write a poem, and I wanted to write my impressions of turning 40. I do highly recommend 40. It's such a wonderful age because you finally you can talk to your kid. A lot of your debts are either paid off or, you know, well on the way, you know, the little things that you do at 40 that just makes it so worthwhile. I wrote a poem trying to decide, uh, as I was sitting there, I'm trying to decide what's what's significant to me. I think it's probably fair to say that there are only maybe three things that are really important to me, to who I think I am. I wanted to be a good daughter, I wanted to be a good mother, and I wanted to be a good writer. To be a good writer never changes. You're always in the process of being a good writer. So I realized that of, of what my, my first 40 years meant to me, my second 40 years, but only carry one thing over exactly the same way. In my second 40, I wanted to be a good writer also, and that's something that I continue to struggle with, and I think it's it's an interesting struggle. I wrote a poem called I Am She. I am she, making rainbows in coffee cups, watching fish jump after midnight in my dreams. On the stove, left front burner is the stew already chewed, certain to burn as I dream of waves of nothingness. Floating to shore, riding a low moon on a slow cloud, I am she who writes the poems. I'm a poet. I welcome you to my profession. We need writers. There will never be too many writers. There will never be too many readers. This is a risky profession because people snicker at you. People don't understand you. And I I like to think the better you are, the less you are are likely to receive anything from it. But the benefit you receive from sharing yourself is that you get yourself back. And that's important. That's all that it's going to be because one day it will all be over and whatever our aura, I'm into cosmic tonight right now, but whatever our aura or our essence are, that's what's gonna remain. And I'm simply suggesting this afternoon that Earth has an aura also and that one day Earth itself is finite, one day it will be gone. And I would like to think that whatever it was that we used to be, when whatever it is that comes, what we would call an alien, goes by the quadrants of the third planet from the yellow sun, there is a feeling and somebody says, what was that? and say it was called Earth. Well, who was there? A people called humans. Well, what did they do? They tried to love. And I hope that nobody laughs. I hope that somebody says, it felt that way. Because all we leave is the promise and the ideal. There is nothing else that will remain. I'm always amazed that that I get misunderstood. I believe in people. I really do, I'm happy to believe in all of us, but I'm specifically concerned about those of us who are, for lack of a better word, being shat upon. It is clear that if we do something for the people who need it, the other people are all gonna benefit from it actually disproportionate to the people who need it. I think that we have to be broad thinkers, and I obviously would think that because I am a, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but I am a broad thinker, and I think that we need to keep looking at what what is really a human being. But the poets that I've loved, and, and, and my poetry, you just don't want to give up. I, I, I don't like people who give up on human beings, because I think we're pretty wonderful. And I don't think we have a right to be mad at homo sapien, because he's not wonderful like God, you know. But I think our job is to keep looking to say, is this matching with what we know about people? And, and we're, we're really charged with knowing something about what it is to be a human being. I try to deal in my poetry with emotional truths. And I don't think anything does that as well as poetry. I like essays because I like to talk and because I am from a... To- you know, I, I grew up, I'm a baby in the family, and you, you learn to tell an interesting story and nobody talk to you. But um, I really think it's, it's emotional truths that you're trying to get people to see. You're trying to have an emotional connection. I could never be a novelist. And I keep saying to myself, oh, I should write a murder mystery, and I might. Like, just because I think it'd just be great fun to write a murder mystery. And I can see all of the problems with it, you know, but you should have fun with your art, too. I mean, I'm sure that that, uh, Michelangelo, you know, at some point carved a really silly little figure that just made him happy, you know, that you can't always uh, decide, well, I'm I'm sculpting David today and the Pieta tomorrow, and then I'm gonna do the Sistine Chapel, but maybe I'll just stop and have a hamburger, you know, and then you think, paint the hamburger. And, you know, you gotta have fun with your, with your talents, are, they're meaningless to you. And then you become something that nobody should be. You become not yourself, but what the public has decided to make you.
4: Our series, Till It on the Mountain, and this feature on the life and work of writer, Nikki Giovanni, was produced by Maxine Kinney at WMMT, the public radio station of Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Giovanni read from Those Who Ride the Night Winds and Black Judgment, William Morrow Company, and from Gemini, Bob's Merrill Company. Special thanks for the production help of Gary Slim, Kate Larkin, and Stephanie Whetstone. Funding for this series was provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Kentucky Arts Council, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities and Public Policy, and the State Humanities Councils of Kentucky, West Virginia, and Tennessee.
0: That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast on SoundCloud. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio from the heart of the hills in Whitesburg, Kentucky.